Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. No greater faction than the action movie scene. Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. Your satisfaction, action on the silver screen. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Scott Wiley, and you're listening to the Action Addicts Podcast, and just recently I've done that different every time I've filmed an intro, so hopefully you're not binge listening to this and getting really confused. But either way, you're here now, and so am I. On today's exciting episode of the show, we are joined by a brand new voice. Isn't that exciting? This is somebody that uh, I've actually been trying to get on the show for a while, and I really enjoy his show. He's a fellow podcaster. He runs a show, as he will say again in the future, called Catching Up Cinema, and it's a, usually a two-man show, but we've only got one of them here with us today, and we have Trevor from the Catching Up Cinema podcast, and I'm very excited for you guys to hear our thoughts on today's film, which is Night Shooters. Now, the first thing that needs to be said is that Night Shooters is a cult classic, and some of you may have not heard of this one or, or seen this one, but again, if you're listening to this show, you probably know of it. And if you don't know of it, then I would highly recommend you go and find it. It's a really, really fun film, and both of us highly recommend watching it. Like, that's the takeaway I can give you right off the bat. But there's another little bit of information I want to share, which, again, if you're a regular listener, you will probably already know this, but if you are one of the new people here, of which there are many, or if you're discovering us for the first time because you've specifically searched out for night shooters, and cool, welcome, welcome. There is an episode, if you search back, it won't take you very long, it wasn't that long ago, where Action Addicts sat down with the star of this film and the fight choreographer, Jean-Paul Lee. Now, Bob Pipe, I believe, actually did some of like the second unit directing and had an input in some of the action stuff, but uh, Jean-Paul definitely put together the fights and he had a big impact on how that would all go, and... I call him the lead because he's the guy on the front cover. I know that the character is sort of sidelined for a little bit at the beginning, but he's arguably definitely the lead. So if you want to hear Jean-Paul's specific thoughts about this film and the challenges about making it, as well as uh, a couple of his other films, especially Jailbreak is definitely one that most people would probably know him for as well, which up until quite recently was easily available to watch on Netflix. Uh, Annoyingly, it's gone now, but hopefully it will find another home soon. I would highly recommend you go and listen to that either before this episode or after this episode. Choice is really up to you, but it's a great conversation. And it's uh, it's a relatively short one for me. It's only an hour long. So I hope you enjoy that if you haven't listened to it already. And if you have listened to that, cool. I, I appreciate it. I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm going to throw you over to me and Trevor now to tell you all about Night Shooters. And I will see you for the outro. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're here, we are live, we are back in the room, and today I'm very excited to say that we have a brand new voice coming to you live from the podcast. I definitely wasn't trying to make that make sense as I said it, but I pulled it off, nobody noticed. So, I'm going to hand it over to my new guest to introduce himself, and he will tell you his name, where he's from, and why he does what he does. Take it away, new friend. (laughs) Hi, uh, Scott. Uh, My name is Trevor. 
uh, and I come to you from the Catching Up on Cinema podcast. Uh, it's a project that I, I took on like at least five years ago now. Uh, it's something we've been doing every week, every single week uh, for at least five weeks now. Uh, we put out about six episodes a month. Um, I work way too much. I'll just say that much. But the whole concept uh, comes in the form of the title, uh, To Catch Up on Cinema. Uh, so initially, the idea was to you know broaden my horizons by watching a lot of kind of things that I had on my radar, but just didn't have that extra nudge to go seek out and experience. Uh, but more importantly, um, I had a coworker uh, at an office uh, that uh, named Kyle uh, that we stood side by side at, at our standing desks every day at work at the office. And all we do is just talk movies like we were working for sure. But mostly, mostly it was just BSing about movies and stuff. Uh, yeah. And as it so happens, he was he was leaving town like he was moving out of state. Uh, and we weren't like official friends yet. Like th these are these are millennial problems. You understand? Yeah. Like, like we were we were workplace friends. We we never hung out outside of the office, though. Uh, and so I needed an excuse because I'm that kind of person. I needed an excuse to make an official friend out of him. So I was like, hey, Kyle, you want to like come over and record some stuff? You want to make a podcast? <laughs> and and uh, kind as he was, uh, he he joined me in that endeavor. And uh I picked I picked really well. I picked the right guy for the job uh, because, like I said, all, like every week for about five years now, we've found a way to talk to each other about movies and stuff. And it's basically our book club. Uh, but more importantly, uh, it's an excuse for us to stay in touch because he's he's still out of state uh, at, as of the state. Um, so it's a good way for friends to keep in touch. That's uh, that's really cool. I mean, I actually said to. Oh, it, yeah, yeah. It, it was, uh, it was the episode that at the time of recording has just gone up with, uh, Amit Barmet. He, he was saying, I don't know if you've listened to the episode, but at multiple points, he kept going off topic and talking about Fast and Furious, the Resident Evil films, No Retreat, No Surrender. And at some point, he started, you know, talking to me about a story about something or other. And I just turned around and said, Hey, podcasting is the best excuse to pretend like you're working whilst just talking to people you like about the things you like, which in our case is films. So we have that in common. And when I put it to him that way, he was like, yeah, I like this podcasting thing. And I'm like, yes, I've already worked out that you'll be coming back to talk again. I have no doubt of that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, if you haven't listened to his podcast, you definitely should. I will be completely honest. I have listened to your Catching Up with Cinema podcast. I couldn't for the life of me tell you which ones I've listened to because you have so many. I can't scroll down to when I actually was listening to podcasts because the last couple months, I haven't listened to anyone's podcast. I mean, uh, apart from one video gaming podcast that I watch live, all podcasting has just not been a thing for me. But I remember really liking the chemistry that you had with your co-hosts and you have some great oh i lie i know i know what one i listened to I, I i remember vividly now what one it was it was the batman masterclass on batman mask of the phantasm and then i started listening to some of the other batman ones because i remember some of the stuff that was said in the mask of the phantasm episode i know when i'm listening to a, a, a good podcast when i start arguing or talking with the with you guys and you can't hear me because it's all pre-recorded and i'm like 
get me on this show. I have things to say. <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> what what did I forget? What did I leave out? <laughs> oh, I have no idea. Um, I, I, it might not have even been you. I, I I can't remember exactly what it was. It was something. I think it was uh, a, a commentary on the film itself, and I was sat there like, but it's related to the animated series. The stuff you're talking about is explained in that, and it's connected. It's like the most nerdy sort of rage that you could possibly get. And if you've listened to me and Andy talk about our The Batman film, where we spent like the first hour talking about our history with Batman, it's like, yeah, this show can get very nerdy when it wants to. But mostly we keep it about action and martial art films. <laughs> I feel like my show ends up being kind of the same way. Whenever we talk about like major franchise films, especially ones that come from comics or video games or something, there there is that like 20, 30 minute, maybe even an hour long chunk of just listing the bona fides. Like basically trying to to stamp out the well actually comments on the internet that are inevitably yep. going to come your way as soon as you start talking about batman or something but the the remarkable thing about podcasting is that i can talk about the batman for three hours and still not cover half of what's in there i can talk about creed 3 for five hours and still not talk about everything that I noticed or, or appreciate or didn't appreciate in that film. Uh, it's kind of an amazing format, how how it can be so versatile and just be so sprawling and be so completely different every time you turn on the mic. I know, I know what I can say to this audience that will probably please them to no end is the last couple episodes have been on Extraction 2 and Fist of the Condor. So I, I know without a shadow of a doubt that this audience will be like, I'm going to go find them now. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's what happens when it's just me on the mic. Those are solo episodes because uh, between the two of us, myself and Kyle, my regular co-host, uh, I'm very much the, the action guy, especially the martial arts cinema guy. He tolerates my appreciation for those <laughs> things. <laughs> like he'll tag along, but it's like a, it's like um cashing in brownie points where it's like i gotta save up the goodwill and like once or twice a year i could i could rope him into like hey buddy you want to talk about spl and he's like not really <laughs> it's like well too bad it's my pick we're doing this <laughs> you're gonna listen to me for two hours so uh speaking of weird picks before we actually talk about today's topic i i did just spot when i was scrolling another episode title that I remembered once I saw it that I, I had made a mental note of that. And now, and what, you know, not many podcasts would cover Shin Kamen Rider. But if you've listened to and uh, followed this show, you'll know that Tokusatsu is one of my interests. So it's always nice when I see it pop up in somebody else's podcast that also covers these types of films. It's like, yes, it's spreading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, in recent years, uh, both Toei and Tsuburaya have seemingly been kind of pushing into the western market like uh, in the u.s where i where i reside um mill creek has started putting out blu-rays of a lot of the ultra series not all of them and uh, common rider black uh, is available on amazon prime in my region uh, black sun that is the remake of black um, and yes. uh, black is available on blu-ray in my region so it's very exciting times to see the sheen movies get limited theatrical releases in in the u.s and also blu-rays popping up for these kinds of things because sounds like both you and i probably have a long history with the with the genre but probably come from territories where it's not exactly widespread 
Oh no, no. I I I lament uh the fact that they are pushing it in the quote unquote West because yeah. what you actually mean is North America. It they ain't pushing it here in the UK and it drives me <laughs> insane. Because it's like so many people were surprised that I didn't cover Shin Ultraman, Shin Kamen Rider, and I'm like, because I haven't seen it! Because it's not here! We don't have, well, in general, we don't really get limited theatrical runs like that in the same way that you guys do in the US anyway. But the idea of uh, uh, a foreign cinema, especially one as niche as Tokusatsu, getting any kind of a release in the UK, it would have to be independent cinema chains that would do that, or just an independent cinema. And at the end of the day, there probably were cinemas around the UK that had them, but I wouldn't know where to look for it. And even if I could, I'm not driving 300 miles to watch it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate. Like, I'll, I'll say that much. Because um, I, I, I'm from Seattle, and like our, our demographics are, are super... Like, it's a very much a melting pot society. And as such, when it comes to foreign films, getting limited theatrical runs in my area, it's actually pretty easy for me to track stuff down and find it. So I'm 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 very fortunate and I'm aware of that. Nice. And we'll we'll table the rest of that discussion because otherwise we'll be even more off topic for even longer. But as people who have seen the title of today's episode will already know, we are going to be talking about the 2018 film released that was called Night Shooters. Directed by Mark Price and starring Andy McNabb, Nikki Evans, Rosanna Holt, and of course, John Paul Lee, who people who listen to the show regularly will know was on the show not that long ago. And we actually did talk about Night Shooters while he was on. We actually talked a little bit more about Night Shooters that was showed in the episode, but you know, the the guy wants to work again, so I cut out some of the stuff of what he said. I'm I'm joking. He he said nice things, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, Night Shooters. I'm very curious how, because I'm I'm right in saying that you had already seen this when we were talking about it, because uh, we started talking about it because of that episode with Jean-Paul Lee, correct? Well, that's that's the thing, is I have owned Night Shooters since it was available on Blu-ray, and I have that ah. right in my hand here. Unfortunately, it is a Region B disc, and I do not have a Region B player. So I've owned Night Shooters since like 2019, probably. Um, but I did not actually get around to watching it until you initially poked me via the Twitters about talking about this movie. Uh, at at which point I found it on uh, Tubi, uh, oh, yes, a streaming yes. service. Uh, so I, I ended up watching it uh, in April, um, and that was actually my first time watching it. So despite owning it for all these years, I, I only got around to watching it a few months ago. Uh, so now I've seen it twice uh, as of as of this recording date. Excellent. Well, since this was a first-time watch for you, the obvious question is, what did you think of it? I thought it was very good. I, I think it gets a lot of bonus points for for pluck, for quirkiness, uh, for ingenuity, um, and just in terms of like squeezing a lot from a little. Like this is a movie that's clearly of a lower budget range, um, but in terms of writing and performance and especially action choreography, it punches well above its weight. Um, and as such, it, it ends up being a kind of a, a remarkable little movie in a lot of ways. Um, I will say it does feel slightly uneven from, from my standpoint. Um, the, t the tone is a difficult thing to balance in any production. Um, but on the whole, uh, I found it very enjoyable. 
Yes, you are 100% correct in that it was a low-budget affair. I mean, it was so low-budget that at one point, I'm pretty sure uh, I'm going to be repeating what Jean-Paul said. So if you listen to the episode, I apologize. But basically, they wanted him to be in the film and do the fights, but they couldn't actually afford to pay for his team to come and do the fights and to perform the fights. So it was very much like, ah, well, this is going to make things a bit more awkward for me. and. Um, as uh, our, our lovely, reliable friend IMDb Trivia tells me, this film was shot in 17 days in a building that was genuinely scheduled for demolishing and was demolished when the film wrapped filming. So that's why the sets look so good, because they weren't sets. They were basically filmed on location in an actual building that was going to be demolished. So much as I said to Jean-Paul when I spoke to him about this, this film, especially the beginning sort of first act, it feels like indie filmmakers just got together and wrote a script to let out their frustrations about filmmaking. And I love that because, yeah, as as someone that talks to people behind the scenes and just talking to other film nerds in general, we all know the struggles of making these things. And I feel like it would be better for everyone if the people that do work on them were able to let out those frustrations without fear of repercussions. And I feel like this film is a way for them to do that. Yeah, no, the, the opening does quite a lot to flesh out the characters and, and really tie them in with their profession in the film industry. A lot of that felt very, very genuine. Uh, it came from a from a very genuine place where it's like, yeah, th- th- this this was probably drafted on the set of, of other productions more than likely. Um, but yeah, talking about squeezing a lot from a little when when you consider how short the the shooting time and how short the production schedule for this film was and and the quality of the end product it's like that's pretty remarkable especially when you consider some of the choreo is being done via whatsapp uh, according to <laughs> interviews that i've read uh, with jean paul lee and other folks and stuff um but yeah i i i feel like this movie checks a lot of boxes specific to me uh in some ways in that it's also somewhat a movie about making movies, um, which is kind of a subgenre of film that's very precious to me. It's like one of my favorite things in film. It's it's like martial arts films and movies about making movies. So it's it kind of comes together beautifully for me personally. <laughs> um, and I, I felt that it it addressed both of those very, very well. Yeah, I mean... There's so much stuff about how this film was made. I mean, the fact that Mark Price operated the camera for all of the fight scenes probably helped. The fact that he edited this himself uncredited. And, you know, he's, he admitted that he did at the, the Leeds Film Festival. And he also, the bit that I like is that he said that the fight scenes were the easiest to edit. So he would just do them when he was stuck on, like, the the more dramatic scenes which is hilarious because typically speaking, the action scenes are what gets messed up in a lot of action films, which just makes me laugh that he's like, oh yeah, these are easy. And you're like, oh, I wish you'd edit some more action films, mate, because so many people can't seem to get it right. But um, the fact that, like you say, they were literally talking on WhatsApp about how to do stuff and then didn't really get any time to rehearse it. So, you know, you had John Paul and uh, Hung Dante and Mark Price all coming on set to film, and it was literally, right, we're basically just going to do this for the first time now, and uh, let's hope we get it right, because we don't really have the time to do this, like, really more than just today. So it's like we just did this massive fight in six hours, which isn't actually that unusual when you really get down to a lot of independent action films, but 
if you're not used to doing that and if you're not if this is like your first time making an action film and obviously this was shot in the uk which isn't exactly known for making great independent martial arts films so i'm imagining for some of the people involved this was the first time they were trying this and it must have felt very overwhelming to get so much done in essentially like an afternoon and it's just like go 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 no no time for mistakes no time for injuries we just go next scene go next scene go that just that sounds so stressful <laughs> yeah i'm curious if uh via those uh those what whatsapp conferences and stuff if they if they managed to do like the the jankiest of previs kind of stuff uh to assist the edit at the end of things but um one one of the things I, I mentioned to you before the mics heated up was about relationships uh, in in the action film industry, um, and and how beautiful it is to see see people like come away from each other and come back together and and like go off and do their own thing and come back together. It's it's always really neat to see re repeat performances, I guess, especially when it comes to like fight choreography. That's like one of my favorite things is seeing performers either be matched up opposite each other the first time where it's like a long hyped thing. Like I'm talking like Scott Adkins and Donnie Yen in Ip Man 4. That was like one of those long gestating things or one long rumored things. It's like, oh, that that could happen someday. And it did. Um, but the other end of things is when you see people come together again and you get to see them learn each other's rhythms better and benefit from that. Um, because you mentioned John Paul Lee and uh, was it uh, Hong uh, Hong Dong or Hong Dante? Yeah, um, they had worked together previously in a short film uh, that John Paul Lee was in uh, called I think it's The Division. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, it's it's like a half an hour short film about like secret yeah, agents yeah. and stuff. And uh, he's kind of like the big boss at the end of that short film. And they had a scene together in that, which I'm sure was shot also on an incredibly tight schedule. Um, and they did great work. Uh, but here they are again doing two more action beats together and clearly having worked together with each other previous to this, that probably came in handy quite a lot in order for them to find each other's rhythms and, and have some some fallbacks in terms in terms of the way they're they're conducting the scene, like some familiarity with each other. So it's always cool to me to see these connections occur uh on like in front of the cameras the most like the most immediate and obvious but sometimes behind the camera as well like in the form of choreographers or uh, directors or what have you and there's a couple other stunt players in this as well that have on-set relationships with john paul lee uh they've they've been i don't know like how friendly they became on the sets of those other films but they've definitely been on the same set before uh usually as stunt people not not actors so much yeah no, I mean, I'm, um, I remember here John Paul talking about the division because he directed the division. Um, yes. so obviously, like, he, you know, that was kind of like his warm up because one of the reasons why I absolutely loved having him on was that, as he said, a lot of the, the, the films that he's done, like Night Shooters, are there, there roles that he did want to do, but there are also roles that he might ne not necessarily have taken had the bigger films that he was waiting to do something with actually like done something. Cause he even said like the reason that the division exists, the reason why he did speed dating is because he got tired of the bigger studios, just not doing anything with him, you know? And I feel like there's a lot of people that feel that way 
and it, I've seen so many stunt performers who are also trying to be actors utilize YouTube to their advantage and utilize all the different formats that we have now and the technology to essentially make your own content. You don't need a studio depending on what it is you're trying to achieve. But a lot of them only do it for so long and then eventually they go back to the Hollywood machine or they use it as an entry point. But again, a lot of them end up going back into just pure stunt work. And I feel like we need somebody, maybe it will be Jean-Paul, I mean, it would be great if it is, who actually properly 100% straddles that line and says, I can do both and I will be successful at it. Because until there's a format for either other people to copy or for somebody to go oh so that's how that works we can we can work with that i just think it's always going to be an uphill battle for everybody involved and you're going to end up with these weird and wonderful little tiny films that are better than they have any right to be because they've got some ridiculously high quality talent behind the scenes but they don't have the budget for to get noticed by the general public i mean night shooters is a weird one because it got a Blu-ray release. There are Scott Adkins films that I can't buy on Blu-ray that have come out recently, but Night Shooters, I own on Blu-ray. That in and of itself is insane. I mean, I think it helped that it won so many film awards at the places it was screened. But when you think about it, it's just so weird that I can get Night Shooters on Blu-ray, but jean Pauli's other big film that most people know him from, Jailbreak, once it left Netflix, that's basically it lost to me. You know, there is no physical release I can go and grab, and it really annoys me. Hang on, I actually have that one on Blu-ray. <laughs> uh, there it is. I think it's a Hong Kong release. Might be a, it yeah, might, it be looks a Mala- might be a Malaysian one, but uh, okay. I believe it's a Hong Kong Blu-ray. Re- Region A, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if, you, yeah. if you're if you into these sorts of films, multi-region Blu-ray players are going to be your best friend. But even then, you still have to double-check them because sometimes, yes, the Blu-ray exists, but that doesn't mean that they've got English subtitles on them. And that's like, oh, good, I've got a film of something I can't understand. Yay! <laughs> yeah, I, I have a couple of those. Uh, Jailbreak, I, I want to say the English subtitles are slightly questionable, um, but coherent <laughs> and coherent enough that you can get through it. It's no worse than watching like a Tai Seng DVD of, of Hard Boiled or something from the 90s, where it's just like, this is borderline incoherent, but bang, bang, shoot, shoot, doves. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, brilliant. But yeah, uh, in terms of the film itself, I absolutely love the opening because it opens with the opening of the film that they're trying to make. And it, it cracked me up right from the word go with Dawn of the Deadly. And you've got this like pretty standard um, horror movie set up with the zombies overwhelming. I mean, there's loads of extras in this scene, which is kind of impressive considering how threadbare it's going to be throughout the rest of the film. But the the action is great. The opening really sort of grabs you. And it's like, oh, wow, this is actually pretty fun. Like, I kind of almost wish I could see this film as well. You know, <laughs> it's like it, it felt kind of like watching uh, Planet Terror or something with all the fake trailers at the start. Um, but also when they have that argument about indie filmmaking and everybody's not quite doing their jobs, allegedly they are. But I also love the fact that we get a Scott Adkins reference there and it just made me chuckle so much because it's like, ah, 
these people clearly know who who their target audience are. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of reminded me of a, this maybe an obscure reference. I don't know what your audience demographics are like, but King of the Hill is a uh, animated TV series that I, I'm a big fan of. And there's yes. a whole episode dedicated to, I believe he's a fictional uh, Dallas Cowboys uh, NFL player, football player, who his one claim to fame is that he, quote, blocked that kick. <laughs> like It was a pivotal moment in a very big game. I think it was Super Bowl. He got a Super Bowl ring out of it. But his entire life narrative is based around that one thing he did. He blocked that kick. And when I think of that, I, I, I think of this character. It's like, I got punched in the face by Scott Adkins once. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> That's pretty cool, isn't it? It's like, I mean, I'm not going to lie. If I could base my life around that one incident, I probably would. Uh, but it sounds like this character is supposed to be like a like almost like a parallel to Scott Adkins, although of a lesser caliber of, of talent and gravitas. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily say he's supposed to be a parallel of Scott Adkins. I I don't want to say who I think he's a parallel of because I don't want to cause offense to anyone listening, but uh-huh. <laughs> I think he is supposed to be a stand-in for the type of martial arts stars that were big in the 90s and now are not big. And if they still make films, they're making... They're not even B-level movies. They're like C-level movies. And we may or may not have been talking about some examples of that before we started recording that, again, I won't say. But I feel like he was a representation of the old-school actors that you know, back in their day, all they had to do was a roundhouse kick and they were considered number one martial arts star in the world. And now, you know, you've actually got to be able to do a bit more to get the same level of recognition because, you know, everybody knows martial arts without being, you know, ironic about it. There's still plenty of people that don't do martial arts, but you can't just get away with with throwing a crescent kick and going, oh my God, what just happened? It's like, you know, we watch stuff where there's, parkour being blended into taekwondo being blended into kung fu aikido hapkido and all of that together usually gets the reaction of from most audiences now there's nothing left that people can really do to get somebody who's like a mainstream audience to stand up and go oh my god that was like new and amazing because everything's either been done or they want cgi and the the Practical effects of the human body is, again, something that appeals to us. But at the minute, it's not something that I think, especially when this was made, it's not something that appeals to the mainstream audience. And I feel like if you're one of those stars whose only claim to fame was that I was young, I was a kickboxing champion, and now you're not young, no one cares that you're a kickboxing champion and your films are not the best. To me, that's what he was channeling, and I I feel like he may have had a specific person in mind, but again, I'm not I'm not going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love the setup because you know it's a setup as soon as as soon as they do it, where they're getting really pissed off that everybody's on their phones, and then uh, he's like, "Right, everybody, put your phones in the box," and then you go and hide the phones so that no one will know where they are, not even me. And it's like, oh, I wonder if something might be going to happen later that will make you regret that. Because the ultimate uh, crux of this whole story is most people, when they would watch this, if they didn't do that, you'd just be sat there going, 
well, why wouldn't you just call the police on your mobile phone? Because that's what everybody does now when they watch like an old horror film. It's like 90% of those scripts don't work in the modern era because instead of having to try to find a phone or be isolated somewhere random, it's like, yeah, you'd just pull out your phone and you'd know where you are. You could walk to safety or you could call the police or whatever. And it's like none of that existed when a lot of the classics were written. And I love the fact that the first thing they did was come up with an excuse to get rid of that safety option. And it's like, no, these characters will be on their own and have to figure stuff out without the aid of the Internet and the smartphone. Yeah, that that was very clever on the part of the, the writers and the filmmaker to to very quickly address that in a succinct manner because you're absolutely right like your average moviegoer would jump to that conclusion and in fact i want to say in addition to the the nostalgia wave that we're currently in where it seems like we're back in the early 90s now like in, in addition to that going on with with the cultural appreciation of things i think from a writing standpoint it's it's also useful uh, to like make like period films, especially if you're doing like a traditional slasher movie or a horror film or something, because you're absolutely right. Like having smartphones or ready access to cell phones does limit your options a little bit um, in terms of the way you have to tell your stories. But funny enough, like I, there's there's two things that I often find ways to connect everything to. I have a phrase that I use. Everything is wrestling. Um, <laughs> I haven't found I haven't found a connection in this film just yet, but the the night is young we'll we'll get there i'm sure so everything is wrestling but everything is also aliens to some extent um and i couldn't help but be reminded of when they go into the hive and aliens and they are forced to remove the magazines of their weapons and place them in a satchel uh, because they can't they can't fire in the room that they're going into it kind of reminded me of that where it's like we as the audience less so i guess than the characters are aware it's like oh that's going to bite them in the ass later um, but more, moreover, more importantly, it's just really neat that they acknowledged that and did something about it immediately. Um, and, and in kind of a, a way that probably makes sense. I, I've never worked as a sound technician on a, on a film set. I don't know if that sort of feedback actually occurs, but they did a good job of enforcing that in the fiction of the film, I guess. To be honest, I knew that that was real. And I, I again, I haven't worked on a, on a, proper film set i did i did some stuff back in college like independent films but um i, I used to my grandparents pc had external speakers and, I, and it, whenever i would have my phone near it that stupid beeping noise would ha would happen and then i'd get a text message and it took me forever to realize that that was what was causing it and uh yeah uh, so when i heard that that was so nostalgic because it literally took me back and i was like that fucking noise! I hear that noise! <laughs> Someone's getting a text! And then they, they literally did that, and I was like, yeah, yeah, that is definitely a real thing. <laughs> okay, well, well, all credit to the, the filmmakers and the writers, then. They did a great job with, with tying that together. But it's funny you say about aliens, because apparently uh, Rosanna Holt's character, Ellie, who was the demolitions expert, apparently the costume, that the, the way she's dressed was based on Ripley from Alien. I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is aliens after all. <laughs> now we need to find a way to combine these though, pro wrestling and aliens. Yeah, I don't know if um if there's any connection to wrestling in this surprisingly. I mean, uh 
there's there's quite a few like influences uh that the director brought in but i don't think wrestling was really one of them and i've got a pretty good feeling that i can safely say that the reason why is because it's made in england and although wrestling did have its moment here it did reach us it's not like it is for you guys in the states you know wrestling doesn't have that same mass appeal that it does here so i don't think it would have influenced a lot of creators to like put those sort of references in if that makes sense well i'm not going to make this into a tangent but just just one comment allow me one comment (laughs) i have noticed that um probably similar uh to the world of uh action twitter or like action fans online um i want to say in the uk it does seem like there's a niche group that is extraordinarily loud um because there's there's a outsized proportion of of a a wrestling media that comes out of the uk um i i can't speak for the like actual numbers of the fan base but the amount of media generated uh from the uk is is tremendous i think that's slightly different though because that's the same as a lot of uh so you've you've hit a a tangent (laughs) that i can relate to here because there are certain YouTube channels that are made in the UK. They're presented like they're made in the UK, but they're going after American audiences. And I know they're going after American audiences because they're flat out lying about stuff because mm-hmm. they're one, one of the biggest ones. And I don't want to say it because one of the former guests of this show now works for them again. So I'm mm-hmm. going to be a bit more diplomatic. But <clears throat> when they talk about video game consoles, they will talk about how Nintendo was the console to own when they were a kid. And I've sat there like... Not true, not true. Bullshit. Because Nintendo didn't conquer the UK or any of Europe, for that matter. Mega Drive. We were firmly... Well, we were firmly (laughs) Sega uh, territory, but even without Sega, we had microconsoles. We had ZX Spectrums. We had all these stupid mini-computer systems that... And I'm saying stupid with love, but we had all these <laughs> other consoles, which was one of the reasons why Nintendo couldn't just come and take us because they actually had a huge amount of competition here that they just didn't have in America. It was, well, we beat Atari. That's not hard because Atari's already basically killed themselves. So here, buy our console. Yay! That was, a, that wasn't exactly a hard market to crack. Let's be honest. <laughs> anyway. We're not doing a video game podcast. We're doing a martial arts film podcast. <laughs> we, we can do both. <laughs> oh, don't tempt me. Don't tempt me. I could easily make a video game podcast, but I struggle enough to get these episodes out with any kind of regularity. Trying to edit two different shows would kill me. <laughs> what I would like to say as well is this is when we finally swap over and meet the other building's occupants, the gangsters. And I gotta say... Throughout this entire film, but right from this first scene, my hat goes off to Richard Sandling, who plays the lead gangster, Tarka, because his speech about retribution just gave me vibes of Brick Top from, you know, Guy Ritchie's uh, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. And that's not like a negative. It's not like he's ripping him off. He's doing his own thing, but he's quite clearly trying to channel that type of calm but very dangerous british villain and i loved it i mean some of the gangsters were a bit sort of questionable and all over the place but his character rock solid all the way through 
you know, you you knew he was serious business from the second he turned up. And I think you needed that in order to give the film some weight because so much of what happens next, it's black comedy, but it's still comedic. But his character is played seriously, which you need to balance out the ridiculousness of a lot of what's about to happen. Yeah, my minor disagree here. Um, <laughs> it, it, it had to happen eventually. Um, I'm, I'm, I come from a perspective of never really trying to rock the boat, so this is rare for me. But for me, I, I really enjoyed the way his character was written. That speech is incredible, especially the amount of detail uh, during the whole process of of like binding and and duct taping and and slathering and and flammable materials that the guy in the room and all the detail that he's he's expositing about about the process that the guy's going to go through the writing there to me was great i really enjoyed that the his delivery for some reason i the the word that comes to mind is like disingenuous to some degree like there there's like a thing that i noticed in rush hour three Right, I call it I call it like face acting or above the nose acting, right? Where Jackie Chan does this thing in Rush Hour Three that I accuse him of. Me, a minuscule podcaster on the internet, of like saying his lines with the proper tonality, but like his face isn't moving right. So it's like Carter. <laughs> it's just, it's just like the words are coming out. He's saying it with the proper vocal intensity, but he's just like not moving his face. And maybe it's because he's had work done. I don't know. Probably. Um. But in the case of uh, Richard Sandling, this Tarker character, there's like a, a disconnect for me between the things he's saying, the tone in which he's saying them, and the way he's using his face. Because to, to me, like, there's just like, from the nose up, there's just a disconnect between what he's saying and the tone in which he's saying it. Um, but I do love the way the character is written. Um, and some of, some of the... Some of the episodes where he's he's ripping apart his henchmen verbally, like dressing them down, are completely hilarious. Um, overall, I, I think it was a very a very good performance, but there's just an oddness to it that I couldn't quite put my finger on. Yeah, I will give you that to a degree. I think, I, again, I, I don't need to be diplomatic, but I, I don't want this to sound meaner than I want it to. I think the difference is, I know or new people who are like him in real life. And most of them do come from areas of the UK where that sort of person could exist, theoretically. And they tend to be that way. It's like all of the all of the threat is in what they say, but their faces are just blank. And so I think that's what he was channeling. I think he probably grew up in an area where maybe he knew some folks like that because he probably did you know when you get someone that is from that part of the uk the chances are you probably do know somebody like that i mean maybe not so much these days but given the generation that they're all slightly older than me um and most of the people i know are sort of in their 40s it's like the uk was very different for them growing up than for me growing up you know Guns were still legal until I want to say 1993 in the UK. Uh, so that you know, it's a completely different UK that I grew up in than they did, you know. And and crime was looked completely different. And uh, I think that's what he was channeling. It's those sort of old school gangsters where, like you said, 
Um, it, it, it might make him be a bit unnatural. And I do remember thinking that in a couple of moments, but I enjoyed his dialogue way too much to care. I, I, you know, it was like he got the, the vocal delivery right. And I was just laughing and I was like, yeah, I like this guy. And the fact that his brother was completely useless just made it even funnier to me because he's trying to be this big, scary bad guy. And then his brother is just so incompetent that he's just like, oh, for fuck's sake. It's like, <laughs> really? <laughs> it's just, that's what sold it for me. It's the relationship between the two brothers, you know? Mm-hmm. That was uh, Noodles, correct? Yes. He he has the line of the movie for me, if I'm being honest. Um, it's about the camera, about the A7S. Um, <laughs> yes. because I Because I said the exact same thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. Brilliant. Just the timing of it. it's like, oh, that's an A7S. That's a great ass camera. <laughs> yeah, that that scene where obviously you've got um one building, obviously who are filming for pretend, and then across the street you've literally got like the real thing happening where they, you know, it gets quite dark because they set that guy on fire and they, you know, they burn him alive, and then they suddenly realize that they're being watched through the window and recorded. And it's like, who the fuck are they? (laughs) Who the fuck are those fucking fucks? (laughs) And then it's like, it cuts to the other building and they're doing the exact same thing. And then when they have that slow realization, I love stuff like that. It's like, it's the physical comedy. And then like the one liner that just sells it. And I really, really liked how this not particularly likable group of actors were suddenly making me laugh because they're not likable, but they are likable. It's just that they're in an impossible situation. So, and everybody's at their last nerve. So everybody's acting like an asshole, but they're not actually bad people. Well, all but one of them isn't actually a bad person. And that's when it starts to shine through that. They're not all terrible people, you know? Yeah. The, the the unity that the the characters kind of embrace like as as things roll along uh, you really feel it and i don't know how much of that had to do with like casting or just like overall just strength of performance but like the the crew in this movie really do feel like like a family i guess um they they snipe at each other frequently but that's that's just like the kind of thing you'd expect from like siblings to do um and so like when when things start start to get hairy it it really does amplify the stakes because you see how much the characters care about each other and by extension you the viewer can't help but be invested in that yeah yeah and it's it's not long after that, that we get our first fight scene with Jean-Paul Lee and I I made an uh, I remember making a, a sort of note because it surprised me that he could just pick up a gun and immediately start shooting it and be super accurate and that was like oh well he he's clearly a really good fighter. He is also like the stunt guy, so maybe he's gone to gun ranges. It's like I can I can sort of buy that. But then the rest of the crew picks up a gun and they're just like more fucking dangerous than the actual gangsters coming to kill them. And I was like, okay. <laughs> that took me for a bit a bit of a spin. And they were like, I I I both loved and wasn't sure if I liked the fact that they weren't like falling apart and scared their immediate gut instinct was to fight back. And it's like, I like that because it made a change. I'm not convinced that's what would happen, but it was not what I was expecting. So that's why I liked it, if that makes sense. 
yeah in reality i'm sure some some pants would be peed and uh quite a lot of running would happen and maybe even just like fetal position kind of stuff because that's a lot of guys with a lot of very big guns <laughs> um but to to call back to your i guess your most recent episode uh, i got some putty patrol vibes uh, from the first wave of <laughs> of masked uh attackers against john paul lee because nobody has like bad egg on their face like doing the in the background or anything but just like you can tell we're, we're like recycling bodies and putting ski masks on whoever we've got to, to take falls today and it's very yeah. very charming but now that we're talking about the action design um i guess this, this is an important part of the conversation after all uh yeah go for uh, it, it, it um, you'd be surprised how often i go through a two-hour episode and the action doesn't actually even really get mentioned outside of it was very good and it always makes me chuckle when i re-edit these it's like yeah, well, people people know that the action in you know a big action film is good. I it's fine. <laughs> well, that that's something that I've learned from from talking with my friend Kyle, uh, my co-host on Catching Up on Cinema, is that he he has a thing that he says. I say everything is wrestling. He says we we notice different things, and especially in in terms of the way we ingest movies, because for him, like engagement is everything. Uh, you you told me. Uh, something about like a previous conversation you had with a previous host where it was like clearly engagement was an issue for one or two of the parties involved in this conversation um, yes yeah and and for for my buddy that's like a huge part of it and his personal taste in movies is all over the place i can't i can't fucking keep track of it um whereas for me like when it comes to the action stuff i'm super keyed in on it and i notice a lot of the particulars and the the details that to him it's just like punching and kicking and good or bad maybe i don't know it, like, <laughs> like i saw it, it it made noises it was lights with sound whereas for me it's like i'm paying attention to the types of kicks and the types of punches and the way things are stacked and the flow of the edit and stuff so it's just we notice different things we appreciate different things um so uh to to get into like some of the detail of this scene here um i had a question actually um so we had the we had the that uh prologue basically uh where we see footage of the was the dawn of the deadly movie yes um that our film crew is actually in the process of filming pickups for uh, over the course of the narrative of this film um there's a protracted action sequence there where basically our lead actor character dons one of the ski masks and is very obviously swapped out for jean paul Lee. Um, who proceeds to, you know, wreck all of the zombie shit um, using a variety of weapons in his bare hands and stuff. And it's very intricately choreographed. There's some really, really clever stuff. I love that beat with the shotgun where he's pinning it between himself and a zombie's chest so he can have a moment to reload it. Um, there's some really clever stuff in there. The the gag with the, the disabled zombie was kind of odd, but the timing of it was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> But I, my question to to finally bring things together here, um, the way that that is choreographed is pretty fanciful. Like it's movie action choreography, it's movie violence, and movie violence and real violence are radically different things. Um, and I was curious how you felt about the that style of choreography carrying on throughout the entire film despite the fact that that is very clearly the product of an edited film. And then everything we see in the remainder of the film is supposed to be happening in some form of reality. 
Hmm. Like what so, I'm what I'm getting at is like, would it have been a better or a different? Like I don't know if it would be better, but it would most certainly be different if the style of choreography was very grounded and realistic, with people getting fatigued and not doing round kicks and just doing a lot of grappling and wrestling and that kind so of stuff. I would say because it's John Paul doing it, I agree with you that it is a tad over the top that he is able to have this level of endurance and he he basically is one man armying everyone for a good portion of this film eventually the crew does start to help out but i wouldn't necessarily say that it is it's not in the realms of like fantasy you can see that this does take a toll on jean paul as the film goes on and he is getting tired and in a different film I would say I would probably agree with you. The reason why it works for me is that they make it a selling point of the comedy from the villain's point of view because they constantly make a point of going, Who the fuck is this guy? And why is he kicking all your asses? And then you get that great comical line where he's like, Oh, I couldn't go to karate because my kids, I needed to pick them up from school. And the fact that the fact that they made the fact that Jean Paulie's character, his abilities are like a massive issue, and it's a standout where it's like none of the characters can actually believe on both sides that he's this good. That's why it works for me. I agree with you that some of the fights, like you say, they're it's very similar to the editing that we got at the start of the film, but that doesn't bother me that much. And the thing is. I might have a few years ago agreed with you that I would have preferred to see more realistic fight scenes because I do like grounded fight scenes and in some films I would prefer them. But there is a film that I actually enjoy but it kind of once and for all put to bed my disillusionment with realism versus enjoyment. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's by Eric Jacobus and it's called Death Grip. Oh, I've seen some scenes from it, yes. I haven't seen the whole thing front to back. Okay, well, uh, that's one I actually do own on Blu-ray. Mine's actually a signed copy because I backed the film uh, when it was in pre-production. And I was happy with it. I will do an episode on it one day for those listening. But it basically did what you just said, which is that it gave us... the, the, The selling point of the film was basically that the main character would imagine how he thinks the fight is going to go in his head. And that would be a Hong Kong level caliber fight sequence with perfect editing, perfect hits, perfect like speed, durability, this this really cool segment. And then after you've had that, the realistic version would play out and it's disappointing and boring. And the thing is, that was really cool. The first couple of times I started to watch that, and then it got frustrating, and then it got grating. And the problem is, is it kind of made me decide once and for all that if I'm going to sit down and watch a martial arts movie, I don't care. You know? And it's, I, I like my grounded and my realism, but I don't necessarily think it needs to be so grounded and realistic that you're throwing a couple of punches and then the other guy's knocked out. Or you're tired after 60 seconds because that that can just become very like draining uh, as an audience member 
So I feel like you need those energetic fight sequences to balance out the darker aspects of this film. But I've got a funny feeling that you're going to say that the fact that the fight scenes were so amped up, but the but the dramatic scenes are so like horrifically violent in some of them is where your tonal inconsistencies come from. Kind of, yes. Um, yes. But to, to clarify, <laughs> to, to just like make my perspective known, um, I'm very happy with the presentation of the fights in this because for me, Jean-Paul Lee being on the cover of the thing is, if I'm being honest, why I'm watching it. Um, yes. So I'm glad he gets to strut his stuff, both as you know, a coordinator and as the star in terms of the action design component of things. Uh, so I'm very happy with with what we got because it's of a high standard of quality. To me, I was just curious on your thoughts as to like as a film yeah. to to have to have the style of choreography be consistent in in the fiction of of the film, like the the edited film at the beginning of it be consistent all the way through the film. I was like, that's a that is a choice made on the part of the filmmaker. And in terms of entertainment value, it's the correct choice. I was just curious yeah. on your thoughts on that. And I'm, I'm really glad that I asked you because you had a lot to say about it. Well, the, the thing for me is Night Shooters in general is very much a me film because it's dark. It's gritty. Yes, it's a little bit British. I'm, I'm aware that that's <laughs> just, a, just a little bit. <laughs> yes, just a little bit. That may that may eschew my enjoyment um, when I watch like 60 American films a year and then I pop in a British film and it's very noticeable when it's different. However, I kind of picked up on this film's dark comedy from the word go, and I've noticed that it sounds like you did as well. Um, and I think everyone's mileage on that will vary depending on personal taste. But I've noticed a lot of the reviews I've seen from people who don't like this film basically come down to the fact that they missed the part that they were supposed to be laughing at it. You know, wow. it was hilarious. <laughs> it, trust me, those people are out there. Not just wow. for this film, but films like this in general. You you always find reviews like that for this type of film. That's so strange to me. The 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 use of profanity in this film is is magical. Like I'm <laughs> I'm so I'm so jealous of you of you Brit because like I I I can't say the c word here in the states. It's not socially acceptable. You guys just throw it around like it's every old thing. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to put this out there. I mean, I know I have a few of my fe fellow Australians listening, but we ain't got nothing on them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a it's a very specialized word uh, in the U.S. I'll just say that much. But the, the use of it in this film is wonderful. Uh, there's, it's there's some uh, beautiful it's, profanity it's, in this. Film. I, I will just, I will just say that that word is not as acceptable in most of the UK as you might expect. Don't get me wrong; I still hear it, and it's still yes, I probably hear it more than you do in the US. But it's, it's, it is the word reserved for like the worst possible person or thing imaginable. It's not one that will get thrown out quite as openly, unless you're going again with a very certain stereotype because I'm very quickly reminded of Big Ray from Accident Man films, uh, yeah. which is definitely <laughs> his word of choice. <laughs> yeah. And I love it. It's great. <laughs> in fiction. I don't know if I could handle that in my everyday life. Um, but well, yeah, there's a lot of snappy dialogue in this for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and all I was going to say was, is that that is the thing. It's like, I, d I don't want to like, 
uh, uh, say a lot of false information, but when you're trying to accurately portray people in this line of work, and I use that phrase very loosely, um, you're going to get a different type of personality to the average nine to five worker. And the, the shadier people that I may, may, might have known in my past, swearing was the least problematic thing that they thought and did. So yes, it was not really a thing. I mean, God, I, I can remember one of my Irish descendant friends that I went to college with every other word was a swear word and yeah it, it there are certain people for whom swearing is just not even a thing that they notice they're doing it's just it's their version of um you know <laughs> yeah I, I had some friends growing up that fucking was was um it was just it was the it was the beat between thoughts basically is it you know fucking yes. uh it was used like that it was deployed very regularly yes like i said the fights in this film they were great. I mean, it's 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 it surprised me how good they were, considering that they didn't have a lot of time. I mean, I didn't know that when I watched it originally, but I watched it. I don't even think I, I really watched it for Jean-Paul Lee. I think it was just I picked it up for relatively cheap and it was a martial arts film. And that was around about the time when I was still able to do that relatively easily. Um, So it was great. And then. Uh, that was how I found Jean-Paul Lee. I hadn't seen Jailbreak at that point. And the fact that the director was the guy that made like a film for like 60 quid or whatever, you know, I did know of the director. Uh, so I think that helped. But some of the deaths in this just... <sighs> the The serious deaths where like, you know, I didn't see the woman dying when she was taken hostage and... That just surprised me because suddenly everything got real. Like you said, the fantasy fights, the the comedy, and then all of a sudden, right, we've just lost a character. This this is real. Like, yes, it, we're not going to change the tone, but people are dying. And this is not going to be the last person that dies. We're not all getting out of this alive because, you know, when uh, a film crew goes up against some actual people with guns that kill for a living, it's... Uh, Probably not the film crew that's going to come out on the other side of this in one piece. But I absolutely died of laughter when the guy got pushed out the window and splattered on the ground. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a great death. I mean, the effects on that were amazing. But the whole way that scene played out and then he just gets pushed out the window, I, I, I had to pause the film because I was laughing that much. <laughs> Yeah, please don't burn me. I think is the phrase as he's standing up um, after he's been pissed on. Uh, <laughs> just the timing of it, like because so much of comedy is timing. It's just like bam, bam. It's like oh, whoa, that's an exploding body. <laughs> and yeah, I was rolling on the floor. It's the old action star, isn't it? Whose name escapes me, and he uh, he's pretending that he's one of the dead ones, and so they're like kicking him and punching him and then they piss on him and they're like no he's definitely dead and then they can't uh they can't get the the lighter to work so the other guy goes off to get something and then he decides to sit on the windowsill like with the window open which i wouldn't do even if i was convinced the guy was dead because i'd be too terrified of falling out of a goddamn skyscraper but hey or even a small tower block would be enough but it, yeah it's one of those things where 
like I know people would do that, but I never would. And the fact that it, like you say, it does come back to cause his undoing. But then, yeah, that that splat was just like, wow, I did not expect that, but that was hilarious. <laughs> no, I I love that, and I love the the, the slow burn to that. Because the the character's name is Harper, I think the 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 act the flamed out actor guy, and he's he's yeah. laying on the floor, and then we have this whole scene where a lot of the henchmen in this have a lot of the the more funny uh, quotable moments in this. Uh, in particular, um, I I just looked him up. Uh, Nicholas Aaron plays the character O'Hara or O'Hara. Um, yes, I don't yes. Know, I don't know if he improvised a lot of his dialogue. It kind of felt like he probably did, um, but he has a lot of really really awesome lines in this uh, i like that exchange like you said about the um him accusing his uh cohorts of failing to go to martial arts class and then there's that a bit where he looks at the one asian guy and he's like that's racist man. <laughs> it's like, that's even more racist <laughs> like there, there's a lot of comedy gold between the underlings the henchmen not so much like the hardcore like big bads in this like our, our chief villain he's He's funny in his own specific way, but like the his the heavies, like his right and left handed man's they're they're pretty deathly serious for the most part, except for that twat bit. That's that's pretty great. <laughs> um, and I like that they call back to it at the very end as well. Um, yes. But yeah, that that whole sequence, how we keep cutting back to it. And it's like, man, he's been just laying there for a really long time. It's like he's doing some of that acting shit playing dead. Um, but like randomly the one the one gangster has a ritual apparently of peeing on people after he kills them <laughs> apparently he's done this before but then he has to go fetch uh, a can of petrol as they call it um, yeah and so like there's a whole a whole nether scene in between him having to run all the way down the stairs and run back up the stairs and the payoff is of course is that just before they set him on fire he stands up and says please don't burn me and then noodles uh fool that he is <laughs> gets pitched out the window which of course then makes the uh Taka get even more violent and unhinged because that's his brother which you know of all of the people that they could have pushed out the window that pretty much guaranteed that peace is no longer an option he woke up today and chose violence and <laughs> not not that i think he would have realistically ever let them walk away but he could he couldn't dangle that carrot anymore, nor did he want to. He was like, you know, I want everybody dead and I want them to die painfully. So that sort of amps up the level of threat because he sends in those three, like like you say, his three main heavies that are supposedly, you know, able to take apart Jean-Paul Lee. And I do like the fact that when that fight happens, he does struggle and he loses against them and has to regroup and figure out a new approach. and. That's when the rest of the crew has to start pulling their weight. They can't just hide and wait for him to like save the day anymore, you know? Yeah, there is a clear like escalation point at that point in the movie. Um, just the arrival of the of the the tougher goons, the elite goons, basically. They're not they're not just anonymous putty patrols. They're putty patrols with with a Z on their chest, you see? Yeah. That actually <laughs> actually makes them easier to kill, but for one episode, we're going to treat them like a legitimate threat. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I actually like the placement of the death of that Noodles character and the, the logistics of how it how it plays out. Because from a writing standpoint, it does get ahead of you, the viewer, and answer that question of like, well, why don't they just 
they have the call sheet at that point. Why don't they just like get them tomorrow or something? Like, why, why don't they just wait till everybody goes home and, and like get them on their way out or something? But when you have the chief antagonist of the film now being now having like a personal stake in things, now having been personally harmed on accident, now it's like, oh, there's no going back. Like, like we're going like we're going balls to the wall here. Um, so it's it's a nice escalation point. Plus, you get that one two punch of that. And then I think um, the one dude gets the, the glass shard shot in his face. Um, yes, that so, was just so it's say like, that. so it's just like, whoa, that was a lot of violence. Uh, and then very shortly thereafter, I think is, is when you get the two on one fight, which just based on the attire and stuff and, and I don't know, something about the optics, the aesthetics of the presentation of it, it's like, it, you can't help but think of like, who am I or, uh, or wheels on meals or something where it's like, it's two nicely dressed, like suited individuals versus like a kind of plain clothes guy. Which, you know, that's that's another beautiful aspect of the world of action film appreciation is that everybody's seen the same movies that you and I have, and they all love them much in the same way that you and I do. And because they're afforded the opportunity to make films of their own, of course, they're going to pay homage to things that came before the things that they they hold dear. And and I love little things like that. But it's a nice two on one. Uh they go off into the spirit realm or something. Some some location we only see for that fight. <laughs> Very clearly, we 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 set aside that room so that these guys could do everything that they needed to do, like take all the bumps that they needed to take, and like set up the lights in a specific way or whatever. Um, it kind of made me think a little bit of uh, the two on one at the end of Marental. Um, mm. It's kind of similar not not in terms of pacing like all the fights in this movie are set at a breakneck pace like we have we have no time to lollygag whereas marintel there's a lot of there's a lot of rest beats there's a lot of drama a lot of, a lot of face acting that goes on between the players and that but just the notion of the two-on-one and the the kind of the bulldog intensity of the two people kind of throwing themselves at him at the same time uh, it's really well conducted. I'm not sure how I feel about that that bit with the wrench at the end. I felt like that was maybe escalating things slightly too far because we do get the knife action after this, which which you know feels like a proper escalation. But when you're banging somebody on the face like with a wrench, it's like I'm sorry, like movie or not, that that's usually an ender. Like like that's usually kind of it. Like you can. For, like in a in a movie for sure you you can like catch somebody on the limbs or like in the ribs or something it's like okay I, conceivably that guy can come back from that in a later scene or something he's gonna need to take a breather have some orange slices or something but yeah. when, when you when you whack someone on top of the head with, with a monkey wrench it's like i think that's it man it's like i don't think either of them were even split open at that point so that was maybe a bit much, um, but how about yeah, you? No, what did you think of the two-on-one? I, I agree with you about the wrench, because this is the thing. Like, I still enjoy the fact that the fights are entertaining. The problem is, at this point in the film, it comes after the realism of the splat from the window and the shard that just killed a guy in one shot. And I still want the big fights, but like you said, if you get smashed in the face with a wrench, that's going to do some permanent damage. And I feel like it reminds me of the fights in Broken Path where every single fight should have killed them. Yeah. And the answer, of course, is they don't have the money to have enough stunt guys to 
get another person in that's got a different face. So they're just going to be superhuman for now, and we'll kill them later. And uh, I can I can be fine with that, but in terms of just like a random person enjoying it, I feel like that might be a, a bridge too far for them. Like I actually enjoyed the fight, even though it kind of didn't feel like they were the final fight guys, because we had a a big group fight where Jean Paul was taking people apart, and now he's sort of struggling in inverted commas with these two. But the, again, I think this is just a, a a repercussion of how little time they had to film. They don't get to do a lot of big fancy stuff that sells you on how much of a threat they're up they are, and there isn't anybody else on the film crew that's like semi good at martial arts for them to demonstrate like how good they are by beating them first for then Jean Paul to have to come in. It's all got to be done in a really short space of time, basically in one fight scene. And it works, don't get me wrong, but I I think that uh, if they'd had a bit more time, they'd have probably done it differently. But at the end of the day, what they did works. And it, with you're talking about films at this budgetary level, I think that's all that you can really ask for. As long as it as long as it doesn't break the film, it's fine, you know. Yeah, as as a bit of spectacle, it's it's enjoyable. I'm really glad it's here, but um it's it's placement in the film like roughly like a midway point or something and the fact that they they're subservient to the Chilemba character who as far as I can tell, has a name while these two don't really, at least not said on camera, kind of tips you off to the fact that it's like, as as menacing or as tough as these guys are, we're still saving some of our, our, our action budget in terms of like energy and screen time in particular for something else. So it's like, oh, they're not they're not going to blow their wad here. Like what's here is going to be good. But if if they're constructing a, a satisfying film, it's not going to it's not going to completely knock my socks off. They'll they'll save that for later for the for the Chilemba guy who clearly these two answer to. Yeah, yeah, and and also we we see a lot of fights going on now at this point from all the people that are still alive. Because I actually made a point of saying that I really like the fight that Kim had, but it ends with her getting captured, and that I thought was pretty much going to be the end of her character. But actually, that comes back in a really big important way in terms of the rest of the story. But it also has one of my favorite, again, laugh out loud moments where one of the bad guys is like, is that a Geary charge? And then yeah. it goes kaboom and there's just blood splat everywhere. And then we have the knife fight and there's blood everywhere in that. And I just made a note and it was just like, yeah, the, I think the director might like practical blood effects. I'm not sure, but he might just be a fan of it. <laughs> well, when when they open this film with Dawn of the Deadly, like like a zombie movie, and when you have as much like CGI gore and like practical gore and and violence in this movie as they have, I wouldn't be surprised if he's a horror fan. Um, yeah, and and the practical gore kind of plays hand in hand with that. So I, that was that was kind of neat to see to see like the influence there, the appreciation there, because um, it does make a big difference. Um, and this movie is very bloody, and I I loved every minute of that. <laughs> um, but speaking yeah. of the the oh, cool. Kim character, um, not to completely throw us off track, but I wanted to just like get your thoughts, being as you just mentioned it. Um, wh what what do you think was going on with that character? Because she's introduced to us as kind of like a clumsy, unfortunate like PA on the film. 
everybody seems to have issues with her because she's not good at her job. There's that bit where she sets off the squibs uh, prematurely and she's told, like, just don't be sorry, just be better. So everybody seems to have tension with her, like among the crew. But she's also kind of framed as like the, the most innocent as a result. So everybody cares about her quite a lot. And as you said, she gets abducted after like a a, a very scrappy, almost like slasher movie-esque uh, like throwdown with uh, the O'Hara character. But the reason why I'm, I'm fixating on this and I, I want to get your thoughts on this is that upon my most recent rewatch of this, I couldn't help but notice that she's the last person we see in this film. Like she's the last shot in the movie. And I'm curious yeah. why that is being as in terms of screen time and characterization, it's not a whole lot. Like, like I get, again, she is kind of framed as the most innocent, I guess, of, of all the characters of all the crew members. But I'm curious why they made that choice because it's a film. Like most things that find their ways into finished films are there for a reason. If I remember correctly, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, the final shot uh, jumping ahead of here is they're all in the car and then she gets into the car and drives them away, right? I forget if she's driving, um, but yeah, they, they park and everybody's in the car and then it pans over. And it's it initially it's looking at everybody. It's like a shot that encompasses everyone in the car. But then the actual final shot, if memory serves, is it pans over and fixates almost squarely on her. Yeah, I remember thinking that was a weird ending shot. Originally, I thought that the the kind of joke was is that she's still being the PA of the group despite everything they've gone through because she's the one driving them away. <laughs> That's what I think they were going for is that, you know, they all sort of limp into the car, like, you know, covered in blood and shattered and bruised. And then she's the one that has to, like, hop her way around to the car and then still basically drive them to the hospital because that's what her job is. She's there. She's the PA. Um, but yeah, I remember thinking that that final shot in the car was weird. I, I, I don't really know what they were going for with that. It almost felt like it was a callback to an earlier shot that maybe got cut or they were just like, oh, look how destroyed these people are but yeah i didn't really get that end shot i remember thinking that that didn't make much sense to me to be honest well i'm not super committed to it but in listening to you just now i think i have a kind of a theory um again i'm not super committed to it um this isn't me saying this is what the movie's actually about scott yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that she's the pa and, and doing such duties would be part of her job description in a lot of cases um Maybe it's like a no component of the crew is less important than any of the others kind of thing. Yeah. Because the director's yeah. not alive by the end of the film. Spoiler alert. <laughs> well, again, uh, spoiler alert, I suppose the other point you could make is that by the time that they finally have their confrontation with Taka, the hero of the film, Jean Pauli's character, is done. Like he's all mm -hmm. he's he he wins his final fight, but that's it. He's at he's finished. It's yeah. actually Kim that kills Taka. So yeah. you could almost argue that it's her sort of elevating herself. Like you say, the director's gone now, so someone's got to kind of lead the crew. And I think maybe they were also trying to imply that she's the natural leader somehow um, because she's taken that, you know, she killed the bad guy at the end. I don't know. It's podcasting. It's <laughs> yeah. Whenever I start down this this road, I always reminded of something that Matt told me, which is that you know 
when he was interviewing or well when he was listening to other people interview a director and they were asking him these sorts of questions and the answer was yeah i didn't really think about it like that but sure and i i feel like that's one of those moments where if we were to ask you know the director he'd just be like yeah cool that sounds good <laughs> yeah I, I, again we all notice different things we all bring our own baggage into into this art form um so you never know what is going to be like completely off people's radar even the people who made the thing so speaking of the director dying uh how did you find that whole sequence where he basically gave his life so that everyone else could rescue kim because i thought that was one of the better scenes in the film i really liked the uh the journey of that character because he's for lack of a better term kind of a twat uh, throughout a lot of the early portions of the film he's abrasive he's kind of weirdly subservient to the star which i'm sure is actually a thing that happens on the set of a lot of these kinds of films um and yeah he's kind of a dickhead for quite a lot of the movie but i think there's like a very intentional like visual symbolism moment in the film when the dp goes down this movie gets hardcore um, that is one of the most dramatic death scenes I have seen in quite some time. Um, yes, we got slow motion. We have like white feathers dripping into the frame. Yeah, uh, we're we're cutting back and forth between that actress who's fantastic. Um, she has a great energy uh, in this role that she's like instantly affable um, and instantly like gels well with everybody else in the crew, in particular, the quote sound guy. Um, played by Nikki Evans, it looks like. Holy shit, this man needs an Oscar. <laughs> because, <laughs> good, good God, his ability to express grief and just emotional instability uh, is extraordinary. Um, the close-up, like, the director made a very wise choice of dropping the sound and just, just locking onto a close-up of him. Because just his face and him doing the pantomime of mouthing, like, no, don't, don't do this. It's it's like traumatic kind of shit where it's like, whoa, where did this come from? <laughs> it's this huge escalation. Um, but yeah, they, they as soon as that happens, it's like, whoa, this is a big moment. But to to round everything up, like to, to complete my thought here immediately after that, the director who during that whole moment is paralyzed with fear uh, he steps up and he like whacks the Chalemba character with a uh, a computer mod. Yeah. And in the process, and, and I he, should add for those listening, an old computer monitor, <laughs> i.e., heavy, yeah. <laughs> very, very, yeah. very heavy. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, if you if if you weren't there, that's all you need to know. The old computer monitors was heavy. Um, but in the process of doing that, of like building up the courage and. Not saving. Well, he does save the sound guy, but unfortunately, the DP goes down before that. Um, he gets a shard of glass stuck in his palm, and it's a nasty cut. And in fact, it leads to problems for them later because it leaves a blood trail. But from a visual symbolism standpoint, it's he's giving blood to the team basically, like he's taking one for the team. And it's like in that moment, he becomes thoroughly like a team player. Like he's no longer just like the director throwing his weight around and stuff. It's like he's in it to preserve the group and himself in, in tow. Um, so when he sacrifices himself, it's this really tragic beat because you you feel for the guy. Like he's he's trying to do a good thing and he 
I guess he succeeds, but he doesn't really live to see it. Um, and his his end is very sad and and violent on top of that. Yeah, no, I mean, because of, like you say, the character arc he was going on, and by that point, I kind of started to think that this film was going to end with everybody dying. I didn't think anybody was going to walk away when I first watched it. Yeah. And um, I kind of saw his death coming because, as you say, you can see he's physically getting weaker and weaker as the film goes on. And it's like, oh, you're 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 going to struggle to walk out of here, which means you're either going to get some sort of heroic moment and then go or something really unnecessarily violent is probably going to happen to you. I mean, and it's sort of both, you know. He does get that great moment where he tries to talk the bad guys down, which fails, but he's actually being a distraction for the rest of the crew to go and save Kim. And I I kind of got the impression that him and Kim maybe had some a bit of a different relationship, like there was something going on there. So I don't know if that was intentional, but that was the sort of chemistry that I thought was going on between them because there were too many like things that were being said between the lines where they would go off together and it was like he would boss her around and tell her what to do but then when they were alone he'd be like apologizing for talking that way it's almost like oh i don't want to treat you this way but i have to because that's how i treat everyone you know and it's like there's a couple of moments where i thought he was going to say when we go home later i'll make it up to you you know and they, he doesn't ever say that but it's heavily implied so the fact that he essentially sacrifices himself and i'm pretty sure he knew he was gonna he wasn't making out there anyway it's like i might as well do one good thing because i'm kind of realizing in my final moments that i've kind of done nothing of worth with my life so here we go let's do one good thing before it ends yeah i hadn't i hadn't keyed in on the potential like subtext or like behind the scenes narrative between those two characters but hey excuse to rewatch it yeah, and also it feels a bit like an expected cliche that um, I'm sure, you know, if there's any directors listening, I'm not saying that, that it's every single time, but, you know, if a PA wants to sort of work her way up, then being becoming best friend stroke romantic interest of the director or a director is a pretty good way to do that. And maybe there's true feelings, maybe there isn't. I mean, it's Hollywood. We all kind of know how not not everything is real in Hollywood and that includes relationships. I mean, all you got to do is read any actor's biographies to know that, that pretty much all of them have experienced it. Yeah. It's a, it's a fish tank full of crabs. <laughs> Just climbing, scuttling on top of one another. Yeah. It's why I enjoyed Matthias Hughes's autobiography so much because he was so like honest and like brutally honest about what it's like to be a very tall, muscular man in Hollywood, but not famous enough to necessarily be able to say no to people when it matters. And that's not a story that many people like him would be willing to tell. And the amount of times he was quite upfront about the way he was treated. And, you know, there are so many other guys that are built like him that have similar stories, but they feel like Whenever they've tried to say it in the past, they get ostracized for it. And now I feel like society's ready to hear it. But there, I, I, I'm willing to bet that at some point, there's hundreds more of those stories out there, but they're still like, they're just not going to say it because they don't even care that 
it's uh it's 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 not about whether or not other people will accept them they just don't want to admit that they couldn't solve the problem themselves because masculine man can doesn't need help you know yeah no you're you're 100 percent right on that um masculinity is one of those things that it's impossible to understand um, and and like intolerable to navigate um and yet here we are all kind of trying our best i always say it's an ever-evolving topic it's uh it, it really annoys me when people just say there's one clear answer to any of those types of discussions and questions because you think well the thousands of years that society has been evolving and the millions of years that this planet has been going i don't think that it, you can say yes i found the answer we perfected this decades ago and it was straying from that that has caused all these problems and it's, it's you sort of go well if we lived life by that mentality we'd uh still be you know going around with horse and carts and uh living in a very very different world and I can see your point to a degree, but it's just not realistic, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah, the, the the whole film, as you say, kind of just escalates from here. Like, there's bombs going off, there's even more great jokes, and there's there's fights all over the place. But let's let's get to the... Let's skip to the bit that everybody's waiting for us to talk about, which is the final fight for Jean-Paul Lee. And what was your thoughts on that? Because I... I it, it it had a surprising twist that I wasn't expecting. Um, that I that I liked, but I was like, oh, that was a bit random. But uh, what was your thoughts? Uh, well, one, I love that it kicks off with uh, Jean Paul Lee taking a uh, a bump of cocaine or a limb limb sip, as they refer to it in this film. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that they provide an explanation as to how. By the way, that there was a protracted knife fight earlier in the film that. It may be the standout, honestly, um, because, as I said, uh, the person he's squaring off with in that fight, uh, Hong Dante Dong, that he'd worked with before, even one time earlier in this very film. Uh, so I feel like there's a familiar familiarity between the two yeah. performers that probably affords them the ability to perform just that much better. Uh, I love the intensity of that exchange, the creativity with negotiating the knife in into the into the handwork of the choreography and also the finale uh that that spinning slash to the throat is just glorious um that that's straight out of like a horror movie or an expendables film or something i i will just add that that knife fight is the one that they prevised but didn't rehearse that was the yeah. one where they showed up and literally had to film it there and then so the fact that that's your sort of standout is is shows how dedicated and much how much work they put into it like this is basically we've got one one afternoon to get this right and not only did they get it right it's your like most standout moment of the film yeah it, it very well may be but this fight here with um i just had to look up the name of the performer i plays the character chalemba but the actor's name is karanja augustus or i guess he's going by karanja york at the time of filming um Stunt player to the stars, apparently. Uh, we have a lot of those in this film, by the way. A lot of people who have been on the set. If it's over $100 million, more than likely these guys have taken falls on the set of it in the past five years. Like, yeah. no less yeah, than and, three or four guys. And and that includes Jean-Paul Lee. I mean, he was mm -hmm. uh, Benedict Wong's double on Multiverse of Madness just, you know, quite recently. 
That's right. Um, and calling back to something you mentioned earlier about Jean Paul Lee and his uh, his progression uh, through the film world and how frustrating it's been. I, f- I feel like him not being on screen in speed dating, if memory serves, may be indicative of potentially a direction for him, like serving as largely a coordinator rather than like an on screen fighter or something of that nature. Um, that's just a guess on my part. Um, but his his filmography is is a little frustrating in that the results are always spectacular. Like I love watching him do his stuff on film, but as you as you had mentioned, um, the way he's been utilized is tragic. Um, and it doesn't it's not even strictly like a, a big Hollywood kind of thing either, because like he served as, as you said, as stunt doubles on huge Hollywood films like MCU films, uh, for that matter. Um, but then he pops up in like Hobbs and Shaw in a group fight that he I think he's visible in the trailer of that film, but he takes like a bump or something. Yeah. And he's on, he's only really recognizable to, say, my girlfriend or somebody who isn't as in tune on this, like in, into this sort of stuff as you and I, by virtue of his hairdo, which is, I guess, his signature. <laughs> um, <laughs> But then you also have low budget films like uh, I Am Vengeance Retaliation, where I own that movie. Not for Stu Bennett, who is a former wrestler. Everything is wrestling, Um, but largely because John Paul Lee is listed on on the cast. And I wanted to see what he does. And he does some things in it, but he's underutilized. And honestly, a lot of that probably came down to scheduling. I have to assume. Um Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm gonna like out you here, and I apologize, but uh, a lot of the things that you've been saying for the last few minutes, John Paulie actually addresses and answers in the episode I did with him. <laughs> well, sorry about that. It's fine. I was just like, I'm like, I'm gonna have to say this because people listening who have listened to both might be uh like, hang on, I'm sure that this was said on the other episode. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was. <laughs> oh, I apologize. Shows my ignorance. No, I mean, um, he, uh, in, in terms of Iron Vengeance specifically, he literally did that as a favor because he wanted to work with the director. So that's why he's basically barely in it. He wasn't supposed to be. That character was made for him so that he could basically have a few fight scenes in the film. I'm also reliably informed, and I can say this because it was in the edited version, yes, it was, that the next film he will be in in a much larger capacity. Okay, well, that's that's very good news for for him and us, I guess. Um, but getting back to this fight here at the end, uh, as I said, I love that he takes a, a bump of cocaine uh, to start things off because uh, it it kind of provides an explanation as to how he's going into this fight, the biggest fight of the movie, essentially, like covered in in knife wounds and you know injuries from previous fights in this very film. Um, but it it's it's terrific. Uh, I love that it has a kineticism to it and a, a sense of like additional movement. Like there's an extra element of pressure that comes in the form of him being forced into different environments. Like the Chalimba character is framed as being the greatest threat up to this point in the film. And as yeah. such, we need to find a way to ha- like demonstrate that to the viewer. Um, I mean, shorthand for that in especially like, like 90s action Hollywood cinema is usually you just cast a bigger guy 
and so it's like uh, his his body size will sell like oh he's definitely stronger than the guy before therefore he's a bigger threat or something whereas here it's like we need we need to have skill be the be the element that is demonstrating his superiority to the other people that john Lee has faced in this film and so by having him constantly being pushed into other rooms like it shows that he's fighting literally off his heels um and i thought that element worked pretty well and just the the choreography is very very tight here like these are two very skilled performers and they do a, ver a wide variety of things there's a little bit more groundwork uh, in this fight than in the previous ones i love the attention to detail in uh having uh, patches of blood show up on the carpet as they're rolling around when they get to that one uh, padded room with the uh, has like blankets covering the windows or something. It's that yes. one. It's the middle segment of the fight where they drop out the soundtrack. Um, I yeah, love that yeah. little addition of that little detail goes a long way to show the the desperation and also the camera angles are really neat. Or where we get that bit where John Paul is crawling towards the camera and gets pulled away. And you get a lot of face acting on his part where it just shows that he's grimacing and that he's not in control of the situation in this moment. And he's, again, fighting off of his heels. Um, but I did have another question uh, about the, the action design in this film. Um, and that comes down to sound. Um, oh, yeah. I, I have some gripes, honestly. Um, the The use of the use of sound effects and the types of sound effects that they used for a lot of the, the whooshing, like the, the missed hits and the actual hits feel, feels a little cartoonish to me. Like it, it feels like they're going for an old school Hong Kong kind of vibe, but it's not that like, like it's, it's very distinctly not that. Um, and on top of that, a lot of the fight scenes play out with um, like pseudo orchestral, like frenetic music playing over it. Um, such that that one segment in this final fight that doesn't have music really stands out, um, as does the dubbing of all the grunts and stuff. Um, so I'm curious, like, what your thoughts on the sound and the music, especially during the fights? Like, what 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 did you think? I do remember thinking that the sound effects. I'm trying to remember if the because I watched this and I watched a couple other films and I'm trying to just make sure that I'm getting my feedback right. But I'm pretty sure I remember thinking that this is the one where sometimes the sound effects are there and then in other fights they're not and that got on my nerves because it's like you said sometimes they'll put the whooshing sounds in when they miss but not when they hit and it's like no 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 no. you don't just make it go whoosh just because it it, it hits you have to put the whoosh in because that's supposed to be the sound of the speed of your arm moving so it's like if you don't put it in it just becomes really noticeable when it does trigger and i i do remember in the beginning thinking that that's kind of a bit crap but i also was like again it's a low budget film it's not gonna it's not gonna annoy me all the way through and it didn't um the sound effects of the connecting hits didn't bother me um and as far as the the soundtrack goes again it did i liked it for the most part it's not something i'm i'm not a, a particular payer attention of sound Sound design, yes, in terms of sound effects, but in terms of music, I'm pretty easy. Like, as long as, if I don't notice it, they've done a good job. If I notice it, they haven't. And that's that's how I, I play sound a lot of the time, is if I'm noticing that what you've done, it's distracting. If I don't notice what you've done, ah, 
then it's 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 merged lovely but i noticed the sound effects i i noticed the music on a couple of occasions but only because as you said it's so different to the other stuff and then in the final fight the the music just cuts out which to me signified that this was more serious but i almost feel like this final fight should have been the most unrealistic because he took that massive amount of cocaine he should have been like bouncing off of the walls and just you know going full hong kong style just anything goes that is you know if he fell apart afterwards because he completely broke himself doing it fair enough but i, I almost wanted it to be like um drunken master too <laughs> no i was actually going with the uh uh the the fights that Scott Atkins does in Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning when he starts to realize that he is one of them. And he's, mm-hmm. and, and the way that they shot that where all of a sudden he can move faster, he's stronger, he's better because he realizes he actually is. But I would have loved for that to have been the way they did this final fight where Jean Paul is able to outmaneuver his opponent because he's on drugs. Like, I'm not saying that, you know, in, from his point of view, it should have been like he's this indestructible thing. And then as, say, a camera moves around a pillar after it's won, we as the audience could see that he's a bloody mess and the only thing keeping him on his feet is the fact he can't actually feel how fucked up he is. I think that would have been my version of what they did here instead. Yeah, I think that would have been a a very entertaining alternative approach to the choreography. I would have loved that. I I would have loved to have seen him... Just like going like Rictus grin face and blocking punches with his forehead and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Just like exactly. Not not selling any of the injuries in the moment. It's just like what what is going on here? It's like I just hit this guy in the face with a chair and he's smiling at me. What is the problem? Here? Yeah, but yeah. Then, like, like you said, just he collapses into a heap afterwards or something, or he's just done. yeah. Because we we've been seeing the fight from his perspective where it's basically like you say it's the final fight in any kung fu movie and then say as the camera pans around one of the pillars it switches back to reality and you actually see that he's like full he's he's completely broken and he's got black eye bruises cuts etc etc and then he just falls over because his body can't take it but his mind is like yeah i'm ready to go and that still would have worked because everything that happens next when Tarka walks in could still play out exactly the same because his character is out anyway at this point in the film. You know, he can't do anything. Yeah, actually, he doesn't like John Paul Lee, Donnie, he doesn't really have much of anything to do after this fight. So like they they could have put him in a wheelbarrow or something. And when the Tarka yeah. character shows up, just have him like weakly like reach up to like try to stop him and like tug on his coat or something. He's just like. I don't have time for you. Like, like it just ignores him or something. It it would have it would have sold just as well. See, this is this was always the thing that I felt didn't work with Death Grip that I feel like they could have done with 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 Donnie's character here is if you're gonna do a version where you see it from the character's point of view, A, you need to make it crystal clear through your use of color and lenses that what you're seeing isn't real. So that you immediately know that what you're seeing is inside his head and it's like, it's brightly colored, it's lit up, it's, it's film world. Kind of like how, uh, J- uh, JCVD did it back in 08. Um, yeah. but yeah. it, I, like, if, if he was in the wheelbarrow, I can see it in my head now of he sees Tarker and we, and we immediately switch back to it's the cocaine vision mode and you can just see him like kick flip his way up of the wheelbarrow 
and immediately start, you know, hammering on Tarka, and then it just cuts, and all he's actually done is slump out of the wheelbarrow, and he's just like punching the floor. And I thought mm-hmm. that would have that would have sold it perfectly as Tarka's just looking at him like, okay. And then the rest of it just carries <laughs> on. <laughs> I have no idea what his deal is, but I want some of that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, and, you know, it, it would have fit perfectly with the fact that Oddball gets to block the guy with his throwing axe. You know, yes. it's like this whole last segment is so over the top anyway. Like, don't constrain yourselves with realism if you're going to go ott just go go for it like don't worry about it you know we if the audience has been on your wavelength all the way through the film we can jump that final shark together you know yeah i mean it's the finale like like if you've been riding uphill the whole time why not just get to the top like just <laughs> throw it over the top honestly but i did like that uh they reserved the kill shot for the group for specifically uh, Oddbod, uh, the the sound quote sound guy. I know that's probably a derogatory term, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, because he was the one that had the most, you know, personal stake um, in in that particular conflict. Like Chilembo was the the fellow who took out a gal who he he seemed to be very very attached to. Um, yeah. So allowing him to actually get the final blow was very appropriate and also very very gory in a very satisfying way. Yeah, that was yeah, a team odd, effort on top of that. Oddball odd blowing up uh, that character, but also Ellie using her like ridiculously powerful acid on the other guy in the elevator. Yeah. Like it was, like you say, it, it. Even though Donnie might have been doing the the grunt work of the actual fighting, they weren't just standing there watching like lemons. They they each contributed in a different way to that final fight. And I like that. A lot of films don't do that. You know, when it comes to the final fight, the side characters just kind of hide and hope that you forget that they're just sort of in the room doing nothing, you know? Yeah, I'm a huge sucker for the everybody pulls their resources like very, very explicitly to take down a, a overwhelming threat. Like, for instance, um, I mean, a dumb example that I've I, don't particularly like um but it is an example is um final fantasy 7 advent children has the uh oh wow we're going back it, okay it, ha- it has what the 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 handshake from hell where it's basically there's a thing hanging in the sky and every major character has to grab the hand of the main character and throw him further into the air and they keep yes. like leapfrogging him further and further in the sky and it's so fucking stupid and over the top but from a visual symbolism standpoint, it's very effective. It's unity. We we pool our resources together to take out a, a, a more overwhelming force. Um, yes, better example. I... Go on. <laughs> oh, better example. Um, but I don't actually. I don't know if it's better. But <laughs> if it's uh, was I think it's invisible target. Uh, it's uh, oh Ni- yes, Nicholas Say and Sean Yu. Uh, and uh, Jackie Chan Chan, JC Chan, yeah. um, versus uh, Jing Wu. Uh, there's that bit where I think they one of them throws a punch and the other, someone behind him, like pushes into him in order to nudge his fist further forward in order to make contact. So it's, and also I think Jackie Chan Chan is holding Jing Wu by the ankles at the time. So it took all three of them to land that one punch. And it's, from a visual standpoint, it's very it's very cool. Um, logistical standpoint is kind of silly, but it, it's fun. 
Yeah, see, I was going to say, like, in terms of martial art films, it's such a, it's such an integral part of the message where you have two characters that are going to team up to take down the bigger threat. And I'd be lying if I could remember all of the actors' names, but what immediately sprung to mind when you were talking was the final fight in SPL 2. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where t- t- and yeah. Tony Jaa. Yes, yeah. Tony, yeah, when those two go in and they, you know, they've spent most of the film not really being on the same side, but, you know, at this point they finally decided that they have to because the the guy waiting for them would just tear them apart otherwise. and the choreography of that final fight it's it shows you that they need each other in order to win like there there is no version of those fights where either character could pull off that win on their own and when you can channel that effectively i think that really works but you you it's much harder to do because you've got to make that main villain feel like he's invincible you know well yeah jing wu was i think the third man in the room for that spl2 fight um funny enough uh again everything is wrestling uh a big part of this um in terms of quote booking uh, a fight like this uh, the only reason this really works is because the villain is either so overwhelming like that like you said that's the only way that you could conceivably have these characters actually defeat them or this character is a shit heel and they're despicable in such a way that you don't like honor doesn't enter into the picture because in in a lot of martial arts films it would be deeply unsatisfying to say see uh (laughs) see see like the big bad of a movie get the indiana jones the raiders of the lost ark treatment where it's just like hero walks into the room and shoots a guy who doesn't have a gun or something like that or say john paul is the guy to pull a knife on the bad guy or something it's like no that's just not done like you you let the bad guy pull the knife so the hero, because he he broke the rules of combat in that instance, where it's like, oh, he's the bad guy now, and now it's now it, like it's fair game. John Paul can bust out anything he wants on this guy. And in the case of Chalemba, he's done some really awful things in this movie up to this point. So you don't like, there's no honor in it. It doesn't matter. Like John Paul doesn't have to beat him clean in order for you to feel satisfied. It's all you want is for the bad guy to get his. Yes. At the time of people listening to this, the episode will be out, but it won't be out at the time of recording. But it reminds me of the very last fight in Accident Man 2, Hitman's Holiday. And a lot of people miss the fact that when Andy's character dies at the end of the film, he reaches for the sword because he realizes he can't beat the Accident Man. And then he gets killed by the shotgun. But he only got killed by the shotgun because he reached for the sword. It's like, Mm -hmm. that's the bit that made it work that I actually missed myself the first time and I was disappointed. And then when I rewatched it, I was like, ah, never mind. I like this now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the the more selfish parts of me wanted one more minute because what we got was so amazing. The selfish part of me still wants that, unfortunately. But like I said, these are visual storytelling rules that when you abide by them it makes for a more satisfying product again in wrestling terms and andy picked up the steel chair <laughs> so he picked up the chair so it's like oh it's it's fair game now it's like he he broke the rules so him getting taken out by someone over there with a shotgun 
it's it's fine. Like that's a that is that's a proper conclusion to that fight because he betrayed he betrayed the rules of combat in that context. Yeah, and it uh, you know sometimes unfortunately narratively it makes more sense to have a certain character not do a certain thing because one of the and again these films will definitely get covered because I love them. But in Deck Collectors Two, another Scott Adkins film, funnily enough, Louis Mandalore, who I actually really enjoy, and I was super bummed that. What I thought was going to be his big fight scene in the film when he gets in the boxing ring and then he basically gets taken out and Scott has to fill in for him. That really annoyed me because I love watching Louis Mandalore throw fists because he's so good at it. And he loves it too. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and, and I get narratively why they did that because the whole point of the film is that his time in the sun is done. Basically, yeah. like he's supposed to be the old man. But it just sucks, like you say, as an action fan, when you're like, oh, come on, we want to see Louis kick some ass too. It's like Scott's already had like five good fights. Let's let's give Louis at least more than two, you know? <laughs> yeah. And on top of that, like like setting it in that context with with like a boxing ring and with gloves, like one thing that's true, like a truism in that is that it only takes one, like one clean shot can turn can completely flip the narrative of the fight upside down. <laughs> so yeah. you could have him getting his ass just whipped for minutes at a time and just like one clean counter. And it's like, we're done. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, I look like hamburger, but I won. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I will just say as well, like the second unit director, like taking us back to this film is Bob Pipe. And I'm pretty sure I've seen his name on some other films that I've enjoyed. And uh, I've I've got to say, like he did a fantastic job in getting some of the stuff together because obviously I know that Jean Paul did a lot of the work on the film, but I'm imagining that it must have been in collaboration with Bob. But you know, when you're working on a film of this size, everybody's collaborating because that's the only way you're going to get anything done. And it's just one of those things where you feel like going, yeah, we've all got a chip in, so. Uh, hats off to the entire team because I don't, you know, the stress of making these tiny films, just I would love to do it one day just to just see. But I got a pretty good feeling that I would uh, I would not enjoy that time. <laughs> well, you just need to find the correct entry point because um, like I, I bounce back and forth between like believing in auteur theory and not um, because even the simplest of film productions has so many hands touching it that it's like, how how could you attribute all this just to one person? That doesn't make any sense. But then, you know, every once in a while you get these filmmakers that they're the consistency of, of their presentation and of their theming and stuff. It's like, man, I kind of believe it now. <laughs> um, but yeah, every film to me is like a mini miracle and just just the fact that it comes together in any sort of coherent way by the time you get to the finish line just because there's so many moving parts um but yeah I'm, I'm sure you just need to find the correct entry point you could probably you could probably do some really cool stuff man <laughs> yeah i've uh we're not gonna we've we've pretty much said uh a lot on the film already but yeah we'll we'll see what the what the future holds i i know that there are people that would like to do that the, the problem is is that they're not in the uk so at some yeah. point maybe i'll uh i'll try and connect more with the uk side of things but we'll see we'll see um so is there anything that you'd like to say more about night shooters or do you think that you've uh, got 
everything off your chest for this particular film? Uh, well, just a couple of notes, I guess. Um, so I, I thought of a couple of other films while I was watching this film. Uh, in particular, uh, Edgar Wright's just Edgar Wright uh, came to mind <laughs> as I was watching this film. Just anything Edgar Wright. Yeah, no, I mean, there's some deliberate, like some very explicit, I want to say, like, like homages paid to his editing style, uh, his trademark. Like, there's a little bit of that uh, in the beginning uh, when the DP is like putting her a Sony A7S uh, together. Yeah. Um, that felt very deliberate. Just the overall tonality and flavor of the film felt kind of similar to that. The closing shots of them in the car made me think of The World's End. Um, and the long kiss goodnight, just the car, shitty car running away from an explosion. It's just it's just a common thing that happens in action movies. But right now I'm just I'm just word diarrhea right now. Just <laughs> just things are coming out of my mouth. Um, when uh when the Tarker character uh finally enters the fray in the in the closing moments of the film, um, couldn't like maybe this is just me like this didn't i'm not accusing the film of ripping anything off N not at all this is a very unique film in a lot of ways um it has a lot of love for action cinema like apparent in watching it but uh, it reminded me of when mel gibson does the same thing at the end of expendables 3 um where it's just like a guy with a big giant revolver says you you, you want to do something god do it yourself <laughs> it just kind of reminded me of that same beat in that movie where it's just like he's thrown literally all of his goons at our heroes and that's just like fuck it we're picking up the biggest revolver we've got and i'm just gonna casually stroll over there and just wreck everybody's shit I i'm probably gonna say something that could spark another half hour conversation but Sweet. it won't <laughs> i agree with you that it is very similar i mean i don't think that's necessarily uh, a uniquely like Expendables three thing. There have definitely been no. other characters who've done that sort of thing before. But I, I I do see what you're saying. I do actually prefer the way it's done in Night Shooters than the way it's done in Expendables three. Me too. And oh, that's good. Um, <laughs> but that's partly because I don't like the way Expendables three does. Well, pretty much anything. But that's uh, <laughs> and that's an episode that is is in the making. But specifically regardless of your personal opinion of Mel Gibson, I really enjoy his performance as a villain in Expendables 3. And the reason why it disappoints me, which I should say for the episode, but fuck it, we're here. He makes a big deal about the fact that he is going to tear Barney Ross apart with his bare hands. And I wanted that to resonate in that fight. And it doesn't, because the second he gets a few punches in the face, he goes for his revolver again. And Stallone goes for his machine gun. And that pissed me off immensely, especially given how good the fight was between Stallone and Van Damme in Expendables 2, where they really sold you on how much there's a hatred that is brewed between them. And yet Expendables 3 has a personal connection. Neither one of those guys would go for a gun in that scenario, even if the building comes down around them. They want to strangle each other. And that annoys me so much that they didn't commit to that, you know? Yeah, that, that's a very frustrating scene. I I agree with you. Um, Mel Gibson is a magnetic screen presence. Uh, terrible human being, as far as we can tell, allegedly. I don't know if that's alleged or not. But, but except divorced from his, his actual personhood. Like, yeah. As a performer, 
He brought it in that movie. He brings it in a lot of movies, if I'm being honest, um, regardless of what year they're produced. Um, and yeah, the the buildup to that fight, unfortunately, like they, they kind of shot themselves in the foot there because his performance in that scene when they're in the van with him together is terrific. And yes. they really do a fantastic job of making him seem like a legitimate threat. And, you know, old crazy eyes Mel, like uh, you, you believe it. You believe that, you know, regardless of the size of the muscles or the agility of these two crazy counts for a lot in a fucking fight. And it, it's kind of what I was expecting was I was expecting him to be biting him, like biting his ear off and just like be on him like a pit bull or something, because he's act, he actually shows a lot of restraint in his performance up to that point. Well, throughout the entire film, honestly, you can tell there's he's simmering a lot of the times. Like there's a yeah. serious darkness in that character that he's kind of pull. He's, pulling it back a lot and it would have been nice to have that explosion but that whole scene is busted like the way it's shot is largely way out which you know from a action design standpoint i I guess that's a point of pride to show the performers from head to toe in the frame but they're minuscule in the frame such that i'm not sure if that's actually those two guys especially that sweep that mel does i'm not sure if that sweep was actually i don't know how much how much time those two are actually in that swimming pool area together. So, so I'm going to say something that again, we're not going to have an hour long expendables three talk, but <laughs> I think that I think that is Mel because that's like the one move that he seems to know because I swear he does it in every lethal weapon movie, he even does. to Jet Li, he does that sweep and then they even frame it the same way. And I'm like, that's like the one move he learned in karate class. He can do a sweep kick. That's all you need to know, man. <laughs> well, I mean, they they gave JCVD a couple of his his leaping round kicks. Like like it, if you view it as a trademark, then yeah, of course you you gave that little bit of a pop to the audience. But it's just far too short. It's far too mannerly. Yeah, and and it's ultimately very very disappointing, uh, which is tragic because the build up to it is legitimately pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if any, you know, Cliff Notes version of what the longer ep- Expendables 3 episode will be, because I, I, my guest for that episode apparently likes Expendables 3, which is why I'm real curious to see how, how our conversation will go. But I, I think Expendables 3's problems are far worse than that fight. It's, it comes down to the fact that Stallone didn't know what he was making. And, no one was watching Expendables, the movie about old timers coming back and kicking ass to watch them get replaced by new young people that, quite frankly, we've never heard of. And I still think that applies now. Most of the people, in my opinion, I couldn't tell you what else they've done other than the obvious one, Ronda Rousey, which is mostly wrestling. Um, yeah. And, you know, everything is wrestling. <laughs> that just that whole premise just didn't work, I think. I think it would have worked fine if he'd made a separate film. If it hadn't been Expendables, I think that would have probably been an absolutely fine film. I don't know if it would have done amazingly, but for Expendables, no. That was like the complete polar opposite of what had sold those first two films and which audience was coming out to see it. And trying to squash Wesley Snipes, Antonio Banderas, and Mel Gibson around that massive inflated cast that he had because there's like six extra people that no one cares about that he has to try and accommodate for. It just, it was never going to work, you know? 
yeah it's, it's very disappointing very disjointed in that way um i it's kind of ironic actually that the one guy whose name i can't remember is probably the one who's doing best of the young expendables he's, he's the guy who he climbed shit like he's stuck in an air vent the entire finale of that movie oh, but he's yeah, he's on top of the yeah. world right now via top gun maverick and stuff so he's he's doing fine but victor ortiz yeah. is a boxer he flamed out bad but again i i have to add he's doing well because of one film and expendables 3 was how many years ago it's it's not like they've become the next it's generation of action yeah it's not like they've become the next generation of action stars which is what stallone wanted and i and the thing that pissed me off with that is it's like then why am i not looking at a screen of people that includes michael jai white scott adkins tony jar iku Uwais? you know it's like they're out there but you just cast young, pretty Americans, and that pissed me off, in, in all honesty. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work for me either. And if I'm being selfish and honest, uh, it's always kind of bothered me that I don't know if it's an ego thing on the part of Stallone and everybody in those movies. I, I don't know, but it's called The Expendables, and everybody's only getting older. I, I'm ready for the wild bunch of Expendables films where it's like... One of the greatest things you can put on film in in terms of action movies is is like the heroic bloodshed, Butch Cassidy and Sundance, The Wild Bunch, the la the Last Stand, where it's like nobody's gonna make it out of this situation happy, but they'll find glory in meeting their end in in battle or something. I'm I'm hoping. I don't think it'll ever happen. Um, but to me, it's I... like. At so one I'm, point, I'm, there was a proposal. There was a proposal to have The Rock come in and, quote, hunt Expendables. I kind of wouldn't no. welcome that. No, 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 no. That was The <laughs> Rock's proposal. Yeah. I, I remember that. <laughs> and, yeah, funnily enough, that didn't happen. But I'm going to make, uh, like, a, a thing now known, which I think you might see that in Expendables 4. I don't think Stallone is going to make it through the end of that one. I don't think Stallone is going to make it through the first 15 minutes. I think you're right. Like his his placement on the cast list is suspect. Well, I've suspected it since the film was announced, and he basically said, "I'm handing the reins over to Statham, yeah. and he's going to have a bigger role," which was fine. But then, when they were filming it, he put up photos of him filming in that nightclub, yeah. and they were like, "Oh yeah, we're rapping on Stallone," and I'm like, but "You've only just started." <laughs> and the fact that the trailer basically only showed one other scene that Stallone's in that isn't in that club makes yeah. me think he's not walking out of that club. But uh, maybe I'm wrong. But I, I've, yeah, I've not so got you, much hope for Expendables Four. I'm, I'm gonna be honest. Yeah, I, I think the working title at some point was named after the Christmas character. But are, are you telling me Eddie Hall is going to kill Sylvester Stallone? <laughs> like, is that going to be the big bad who takes out Stallone? Because <laughs> that'd be kind of sad. <laughs> well, no, it would. I'm guessing it would be Eco, wouldn't it? Cause he's the I, main I know, bad guy. but that that uh that pub sequence or that bar sequence or whatever that I've seen stills from. I'm pretty sure Eddie Hall was on set for that. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but anyway, what? what yeah, yeah, anyway. I mean, <laughs> It, it it yeah it was pitched apparently as a like a spin-off christmas solo movie but yeah i guess they decided that you know that's just a normal jason statham film so that we probably wouldn't have the biggest draw but you know i don't know on what planet they thought adding megan fox would make the blindest bit of difference to people coming to see it but hey you do you more power to you 
Maybe, anyway, maybe, resi- maybe residual Machine Gun Kelly fans or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck it. I'm Machine Gun Kelly at this point. I mean, why not? Everybody else that doesn't seem to fit has been in it. Go for it. I mean, you know, <laughs> 50 Cent is, is in it and giving Dolph Lundgren shit. So why not have Machine Gun Kelly show up? <laughs> Everybody in the pool. <laughs> anyway. That I think has that has definitely signaled that we've run out of things to say about night shooters <laughs> when we spend the last fifteen minutes of an episode talking about a completely different film. So I'm going to say thank you for no, I'm going to say thank you to Trevor for coming onto the podcast and I hope that you've enjoyed yourself and we will see you again sometime. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. Uh, you have a wonderful program that I clearly need to listen to some some of your older episodes and like at least the John Paul Lee episode. But I I am a, I am an avid listener. I do love what you do, and I'm super happy to be included in it. Hey, I I find it funny that you've listened to my episodes that I know when you've said like some of the stuff we were talking about. Those episodes are like over two hours long. The Jean Paul Lee one is like an hour. Like you can easily do that one, and I'm like, ah, you you're the diehard that listens to the two and a half hour episodes. That's that's not a complaint. <laughs> <laughs> well, g- glad to hear. And on that bombshell, guys, I'm gonna hand you over to the me of the future to tell you what is happening next. Alrighty then, this is hopefully the last of the batch recorded outros. So. So the next time you hear my voice, it will hopefully be post-editing, which means that I will be able to give some better intros and outros. But either way, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Thank you once again to Trevor for coming on the show. He was an absolute delight to talk to, and in some respects was actually a little bit more knowledgeable than perhaps I'd been prepared for, let's put it that way. Uh, I am usually able to match what my guest brings, and... Uh, Trevor definitely brought it. I was not expecting that. I should have. You know, he's done a lot of action-centric episodes himself. I really enjoyed his Extraction 2 episode. If you want to go and check his show out, he has done some very interesting action film picks. He's quite upfront in saying that they're usually solo episodes because he's the action nut, the other host of the podcast, not so much. But that's absolutely fine because if he's an action nerd, more than perhaps I've given him credit for, that means we will definitely have him back on And next time we will definitely dissect the action in a much bigger way now that I know that he is that way inclined. So with that said, guys, that does beg the question, what's next? Well, if you can remember, because again, at the time of recording, this is quite recent, but by the time you hear this, it won't be. I put up a tweet asking you whether or not you like the idea of having a ninja month. And I told you that we are going to have a shinobi season, or the season of the shinobi, whatever works for you, whatever sounds better. Well, it's time. The next episode will be the beginning of that season. And I don't want to say what the film is, because, again, I'm recording this well in advance, so I'm not entirely sure which one is going to be the first one. I'm pretty sure I know what one it's going to be, but it does depend on recording and editing and scheduling. So, either way... The next episode will be the beginning of the Shinobi season, and it's going to be several weeks of ninja films, many of which are the classic films from the 80s that you want me to cover, and that have a bunch of nostalgia, and that you guys clearly go crazy for. 
and I'm really looking forward to either watching some of them for the first time and some of them are going to be rewatches that I haven't seen in years. There are also going to be some more modern films uh, sprinkled in there of which you can probably work out what they are. Yes, we are going to hear me talk about a Scott Adkins film for sure. And yeah, we're also going to be looking at the film that had Sho Kasugi's last screen credit. So, I hope you're excited for the season of Shinobi. I certainly am, and I think it's going to be really cool to check out these ninja films. It's going to be very different to what we've been checking out recently. Don't worry, if your ninjas aren't your thing, there's still going to be plenty of stuff on the website. There's still going to be plenty of stuff coming in the future. And I am very much looking forward to doing perhaps some more themed stuff or some more uh, connected stuff. I, d I haven't decided yet, but we'll see how the ninja season goes. Either way, guys, that's going to be it for this one. I look forward to seeing you next time for the beginning of Season of Shinobi. But until then, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and I will see you in the next one. On the